West, are you guys happy in the house today? Come on, you can do better than that. Come on, make some noise. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, you're looking beautiful. So beautiful you could walk this runway. I'm just saying. Come on, church planners, you know you want this. I'm just saying. Seriously, I'm so, I'm so blessed you're here today. Uh, I'm Pastor Peter Haas. I pastor a church called Substance Church in the heart of downtown Minneapolis. And uh, I know some of it, come on. Yeah, Minnesota on the West Coast. Somebody, yeah. All right, well, seriously, I, I know a lot of people ask me, why would you name a church Substance? That's like the weirdest name. Don't you just love weird church names? I love how weird church planners are getting. You know what I'm saying? Substance. Uh, actually, uh, part of the reason why we named it Substance is because um, many of you guys know I used to be a rave DJ, and I got saved in a nightclub. And uh, I... Uh, I literally, no lie, I literally prayed, God, if you exist, then you should be powerful enough to show me what religion is the right religion. And then a couple of minutes after I prayed that prayer, a guy shared Christ with me, totally freaked me out. And uh, so like when we planted a church, I thought I want a church that sounds more like a nightclub than a church. But I, I and I still got the skills to pay the bills. I can still DJ, so shut up, okay? Anyway, I, but one of the things that I didn't think of when I named our church Substance is now I have to live up to it. Unbelievable. I set the standard high. I mean, if you go to a church called Substance, best, guess what? You better have substance, right? Because people are going to leave your church and, oh, Substance Church doesn't have substance. Must be like substance abuse post on Facebook, right? I, I should have chosen a church name that set the bar lower. Like, like Central Church, Judd. I mean, I'm just saying. You know, because Central, what I love about that is all you have to do is be at the center of something. It's easy. You know what I'm saying? You didn't even define where you're the center of, the center of the desert on the east side of Las Vegas. It's just awesome. I should have thought of that, okay? So there's all sorts of things that as a church planner, you just haven't thought through. And, and I, I, you know, like, and, and if you don't know if you're a church planner, here's how you know. You know you're a church planner if you have more people on your worship band than are in your audience when you start your service. Come on. You know, you know what I'm talking about, and you are the pastor, you're the only one in, and you're the solitary clapper, right? You gotta hold it down for the whole audience. And at the end of the song, you clap like you're five people. You know what I'm saying? Because you just got to feel it out. You know what I'm saying? You like give five whoops in different, like you, you do the girl whoop even if you're a guy. Whoop, whoop, whoop. You know, like at the end of the worship service, come on, don't, don't lie to me. You know you've done it to hype up worship. I'm just saying. I, no, I, I'm just saying there's so many times as a church planner where you feel lonely. I'll never forget the disaster Sunday I showed up and two of our four singers just didn't show up. Like, what? And of course, in a church plant, you gotta have that. And so our main worship leader had to lead worship from the mixing board. You gotta be kidding me. One hand on the mic, one hand on the fader. You know what I'm saying? You are alive in us. Nothing can take your place. You are, I mean, it was so bad. I had to relieve that guy. Get on stage. This is, have you ever shown up at your own church and said, I would never come here if I wasn't the pastor? I'm just saying, there are many, 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 many days where I don't care what church you're pastoring, big or small, pastoring can be lonely. And that's why we have the ark is because you don't have to do ministry alone. Don't surf alone like Dino said. Get surrounded by people. And that's what we're doing today is we're going to do an incredible session called 7 and 7. And really the heartbeat behind this is we want to showcase some of the new voices in the ark and some of the, the legends in the body of Christ who are helping to shape the future of the ark. And really the idea behind this is we're going to have each one of them has seven minutes just to just to share God's word that's flowing through them and, and our job is just to catch it I want you guys to be a big rowdy audience can you be the audience that you wish you had yeah 
And, and, and listen, as these guys are sharing, this is what I want you to do, is I, I really believe that sometimes you, you feel kind of a kindred spirit with some of the people up here, and you feel like, I believe that every one of us needs to have role models, we need to have mentors, we need to have peers, and then we have to have people we're mentoring, right? And, and, that's, and when you hear these guys talk, some of you are going to be like, you know what, I need to get to know them. And, and I, I really believe that the Spirit of God is going to flow through them as you guys be that rowdy audience that we so desperately need. And so here, here's the gang, okay? I want to I introduce these guys really fast and get it rolling. Okay, we got, we got on, on the left side, we got Pancho Louder. Come on. Coolest name ever. We got an audience there. Okay, when I say Poncho, you say louder, Poncho. Sorry, that, I, you have to do that if you have that name. He pastors one of the coolest churches, Planet Shakers in Austin, Texas, and he's rocking it. And then we've got Pradeep Jiva. I just love his name too. When I say Pradeep you say Jiva. Uh, never mind. Okay, we're, we're gonna, okay, you're, you're planting this weekend, right? Yes. <laughs> In Seattle. Okay. What are you doing here? You should be setting up a sound system somewhere. I mean, my goodness. No, see, I love this guy because he's from Minnesota, and I bet that people are constantly saying to you, are you Scandinavian? You know, but, but, but you're moving to Seattle. You guys are going to love this guy. Seriously, I, uh, it's going to be super fun. Of course, one of my favorites here, Megan Robinson. Pastors, this church called The Movement in Orange County, and you, like, oh, she, you're a firecracker, and you're going to use that platform. I just know it. I can feel it. And, of course, we've got Dustin Bates. I, like, I've heard so many good things about you pastoring a church, 1132 in Allen, Texas. Now, I noticed that your church is, uh, I, I love the unique name, 1132. Uh, you do not have a service at 1132. I checked it on your website. It's 1145. Okay, so you're going to have to explain what's, the, what's up with that. Okay, so all right. Then we got Jude Fuquay right here, everybody. Everywhere I go, I hear stories about you. Like, you're, you're legendary. Well, some of them are good. But uh, no, seriously, you're, you're a legend. You guys are going to love this guy as well. And, of course, he pastors an incredible church called City Church in Ventura, Southern California. What? Some of you. And then, of course, we have literally the legendary Wendy Treat. Seriously, you and your husband are a legend to so many people, and your church in Seattle has just inspired so many of us. My wife never stops talking about how fun you are to hang out with. Just so you know that, Wendy, we love you as well. And of course, last but not least, we have Wayne Cheney in the house, Long Beach, California. And this guy's not just a communicator, he's a superstar on TV, and maybe you'll tell us a little bit about that, I don't know, but would you guys kick it off for Poncho right now with a warm Arquest welcome. Awesome, awesome, so great to be here and uh, to be able to speak this morning for a few minutes. This is what you call a miracle, putting seven preachers on the stage and asking them to actually stick to the time, so we'll see what happens here, but uh, I want to say real quickly just to the ARC leadership, thank you so much for all you've done. This Sunday is our one-year anniversary, and I can never imagine, you know, I think Substance Church is hard. Try going into town with a name like Planet Shakers. Uh, it's not the easiest one to back up, but we showed up, and uh, ARC played such a huge part in our launch, so thank you to all the leadership team and everything you've sowed into us, your time, your talents, your treasure. Appreciate it so much, and this morning, I, um, I, I, I believe that uh, God sent uh, my wife and I to Austin, Texas because he wanted to bring a new sound to our city. I believe we're meant to carry a sound, amen? Come on, they said you were going to be rowdy. I believe that you're, you're meant to carry a new sound. See, when I, when I look in the Bible, I see the importance of a sound. I see the importance of a message. I see the importance of showing up and not just being another thing, but actually carrying 
something inside of us. And uh, when, we, when we set out to launch our church, you know, for my wife and I, it was such a crazy journey because our, our cities are pretty broken, right? When we look around our nation, uh, I just so appreciate the word we just heard by Pastor Miles. You know, there, our cities are broken. There's all kinds of tragedies and things going on, and we need to have a message for our cities. We need to have a message where we're going. We need to, we need to show up and not just do church, not just uh, show up and, and, and do what everyone else is doing, but each one of us uniquely God formed and fashioned. He gave us all a unique journey. He gave us a unique name. Each one of us, he formed and fashioned to do something that's different. And I feel like challenging everyone that's here today to say that you need to carry a sound. When we look at the book of Acts, as a church planner, I love the book of Acts. How many people like the book of Acts? The book of Acts is great. When you, if you're going to go plan a church, read the book of Acts because what happens? Peter preaches a message and 3,000 people show up. How cool is that? First message, okay, just got to get a good message out of the gate. 3,000 people flip the pages over a couple pages. What happens? They're bringing on seven staff members that's not in the ark handbook this is so cool church is gonna be easy and you look in the book of Acts it stirs your faith it gets you excited because you see what happens when God shows up you know what's cool about the book of Acts it doesn't say that Peter preached such a great message that people got saved it said that the Holy Spirit began to move in such a unique way that lives were changed See, when we came to Austin, I was in my prayer time seeking God and saying, Lord, what is it that you're calling me to do? And he said, Paunch, and that's how I know it's God because he calls me Paunch. <laughs> and there I am, and talking with him, we're going back and forth. He says, I want you to bring a new sound to Austin. I said, what is that, Lord? What does that mean? He said, see, I'm the God that's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? But I'm always doing a new thing. So how does God reconcile that? Well, he puts a sound inside of us to release inside of our city. He puts a message of hope, right? He puts a message, a sound inside of us to bring brokenness uh, uh, into wholeness, to bring purpose out of destruction. And when you read the book of Acts, it's so cool. Acts chapter 2, it says they were all together in one place. Now what's interesting about this moment is you've got 120. Someone say 120. Now what's crazy about this is just a little while earlier, Jesus gathered 500 people. So Jesus' pre-launch meeting has 500, and on the day of Pentecost, there's only 120. I'm feeling really good about my percentages right now, people showing up all of a sudden. I love the book of Acts. I'm reading this, and, and it says that, that they began to pray, and they began to worship. I know how to pray, and I know how to worship. And if you can do that, you can launch a church. You can, you can make a sound in your city. And we began to pray just like that. We began to worship just like that. And it says, then there came the sound. Someone say sound the sound of a mighty rushing wind sometimes we think like the wind of heaven began to blow and everyone's hair was going nice and back and you had this great image but it actually wasn't wind it was a sound the church was birthed out of people getting a sound you and I the word person means per which is what flows through a son is the word sonic we are the sound of the father flowing through us right and there they are the Holy Spirit shows up and brings a sound into these people and it begins to transform them and what immediately happens is so cool they go and begin to impact their city See, Jesus, when he met with his uh, guys, he comes back, he spends 40 days. You know, one of the most frustrating scriptures in the whole Bible to me is Acts 1-3. And it's because it says that Jesus put on a 40-day seminar. Luke's doing this whole teaching, right? He's this didactic author. And he does a 40-day seminar. And all Luke can tell us about it is that Jesus came and he taught his disciples about the kingdom. I'm like, Lord, if you're going to teach for 40 days, I expect better notes than that, right? For 40 days, he met with his guys, and all he wanted to do was tell them about the kingdom of God because he had this desire for them to bring heaven to earth. And when heaven comes to earth, there's a sound release. When heaven comes to earth, there's a sound of hope. When heaven comes to earth, there's a sound of healing. When heaven comes to earth, there's a sound of breakthrough. And people today, they don't need just another church. They need a new sound. They need someone that carries a revelation. They need pastors that are in the presence of God, carrying that presence, walking it out, and releasing a new sound in their city. And I want to challenge every pastor, every leader in this room to say, 
Carry a sound. Don't just don't be someone else's sound. Don't be, don't empty someone else's sound and try to repeat it. No, get the sound of heaven inside of you so that you can go and you can release something in your city. I believe that God's wanting to release new sounds all across our nation and all across this world. And I just want to pray right now, Father, we pray for a release of a new sound in our hearts. God, as leaders, let us not be content with where we once were. God, for pastors that have been pastoring for 20 years, a new fresh sound released in the name of Jesus. Father, we ask for a new fresh sound for our life, for our churches, God, that we would go into our city with a message, a message of hope, a message of breakthrough, a message of purpose. Lord, we want to be churches that carry a new sound in Jesus' name. Hi, my name is Pradeep Jiva Manohar in Sivaretnam, but you can call me Pradeep Jiva for short. And uh, I, uh, I'm planting a church in five days this coming Sunday. Come on, somebody. We got a room full of church planters that do crazy things like this. So here we are taking our Vegas vacation. You know, a lot of people are like, why are you here? Well, when Art calls you up and says they want seven minutes in heaven with you, you say yes. I mean, seven in seven. What? <laughs> Come on. So we're planting on the east side of Seattle in a city called Bellevue. And uh, we are doing this. We're planting in a comedy club. No joke. No joke. <laughs> and uh, I'm praying that we have a great launch because... Uh, I want to remain credible in your eyes as I share this great wisdom I'm about to share. So please pray for our launch, all right? Can you do that? Say amen. <laughs> so about seven months ago, my family and a small team from Michigan, we moved to Washington to plant this church. And we didn't know a single person in the city. And during that time, you know, feeling like, how are we going to start this? How are we going to go forward? We had various pastors, ministers, churches reach out to us and say, hey, we want to be a blessing to you. We want to take care of you. And uh, there's some people in this room that I just want to be honest, because of this art community, we wouldn't be here today if it weren't for them. I'm talking about Venture Church with the Rhymers. I'm talking about Sun City Church with the Schultz family. Come on. I'm talking about the Martins with Colorado Church. I'm talking about City Hill Church right here. I'm talking about... Aaron Young with Sea Church. There's so many churches in the area that took us in. And uh, I'm not joking when I say this. People freak out when I share this, but five churches brought us on their stage and said, hey, we want you to preach and cast vision about the church that you're planning across the street from us. And many of them, not only that, they surprised us and they said, hey, we want to take up an offering for you. We want to bless you financially. And many of them, they also said this, you're going to freak out when you hear this. They said, hey, we're going to encourage our church to leave our congregation and join your launch team. And they did it. Come on. And uh, that puts us in an awkward situation. Train our launch team, hey, we don't want to steal from other churches, but yes, Lord, here we are. We'll take your people. We'll take your people. Yes and amen. But we, we started so small, we didn't know anybody. Our first social interest party had five people. Three of them were us, and my wife didn't even show up. <laughs> I love my wife, but she was busy. <laughs> I don't know if you remember what it's like to be a church planner in this pre-launch season, but I just want to be vulnerable. Five days from now, we're launching and I feel scared. I don't know if I'm praying for, you know, against too little of people or too many people where we can't handle it. I'm freaking out. I'm sweating all the time. I'm eating lots of weird foods, primarily because I just watched What the Health on Netflix. Do not watch that if you want to eat human food. Do not watch that if you want to eat human food. But you know, as these churches and these ministers in our city across the street, they, they, they pulled us in and they gave us their platform. I can't tell you what that did for us. I don't know if you remember what it's like to be scared and feeling, did I hear from God? Did I, did I make the right decision? Am I sacrificing my family for the sake of this ministry calling? Like, what am I doing? But to have pastors say, hey, I believe in you. 
and you're an answer to prayer. You know, I had pastors sit down with me and say, hey, you don't even have to ask. I'm going to give you money. I'm going to bless you with people. I'll be your sponsor in church if you want me to be. How amazing is that? And through this process, I learned something. Just like it, tra- it, it, just like it takes humans to create humans, come on, somebody. I got a son. Just like it takes humans to create humans, it takes the kingdom of God to build the kingdom of God. You know, and so I see my city as a city of redwoods, and I want you to see your city as a city of redwoods. The amazing thing about the redwood trees, largest trees that grow, they're much different than other trees because they never grow alone. See, redwoods, they don't have a taproot system. Their roots don't go as deep as other roots. But you, you will never see a redwood growing alone because they grow in groves. They grow in packs. There's some redwoods that grow 304 feet tall. And there's some redwoods that are 1,400 years old. But what happens is as they grow up, for every one foot a redwood tree grows up, their roots grow two feet out and reach out and they intertwine and their roots are mixed and they realize, hey, when I grow, you grow. We're part of the same growth. And when I face a storm, you face a storm. And when your church does well, my church does well. And when you suffer, I suffer. And when you plant a church in Seattle, I plant a church in Seattle. And when you lead someone to Christ, I lead someone to Christ because we're one church serving one God, one kingdom, one love. Your success is my success. Do we have a kingdom of God group of people here that we're saying we're not going to be territorial anymore. We're not just going to celebrate the church across the state and not across the street because we are the kingdom of God. We are Redwoods. Do you see it? Come on. We are Redwoods. Man, I love what God's doing in this place. And I just want to challenge you. If you're an established church, and to me that means you're more than six months old. (laughs) Find a young planter. Take them out to coffee. Say, I'm going to give you money. I'm going to send my people to you. I'm serious. You just were applauding that? Come on, let's get real. I'm gonna give you money. I'm gonna give you people. I'm gonna sponsor you with ARC. And if you don't know a young church planner, here I am. I got five days to go. I'll take your money. www.kalos.church. Can I get an amen? God bless you. That was awesome. (laughs) So good. Hey, what an honor it is to be here with you this morning. And I just want to take a moment and say thank you to ARC and to the lead team. So many of you have invested into my family and our church, and we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for you. So thank you so much. You know, I was asked to talk about my city, and my city is waiting. You know, I think for those of you in the room who may not know me, it's important to know a few things about me. I am a fast-paced person. I walk fast, I talk fast, I listen fast, and if you're gonna hang out with me, you're just gonna have to keep up. And I realize that this can be a problem, but I like to think I was just born this way. I made my appearance into the world a month earlier than I was supposed to, and ever since then, I've just been like, hurry up, next. Do I have any friends in the room who hate to wait? Me too. My husband keeps telling me I need to work on this, and I keep telling him it takes too long. I hate to wait. Patience is not my virtue, but it seems to be the ever-present lesson that God is trying to teach me in LA traffic or in lines at the grocery store. You know, many of you in this room have spiritual giftings. My spiritual gifting just happens to be the ability to always choose the longest line anywhere I go. Seriously. But in all seriousness, this seems to be the case when it comes to the prayers that I pray and the dreams that I dream. And like many of you, I cling to the scripture. Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. And I've asked God, when is this due season? Is there a due season? I don't know. You know, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible is found in the book of Mark, chapter five. 
And in this scripture, we find three different miracles. One happens in an instant. One requires a fight, and the other is found in the wait. And that's the one I want to talk to you about today. And so we pick up in the book of Mark, chapter 5, verse 21. And here we find Jesus crossing over the sea after he's healed the demon-possessed man. And a ruler from the synagogue named Jairus comes running and falls at his feet and implores him earnestly saying, teacher, my daughter is at the point of death. Will you come lay your hands on her so that she can be healed? And the Bible says Jesus went, he went. And Jairus here, he is in a desperate situation. His daughter is very, very sick, she might die. And in his point of desperation, he goes looking for the one thing that might save her. You know, he's a ruler in the synagogue, so it stands to reason that perhaps he had heard about this Jesus who was doing miracles all over. And I just wonder how many of us don't come to a conference looking to Jesus for the one thing that might turn our situation around. Looking to Jesus for the one strategy that might finally grow the church, for the one message that might save my marriage, for the one conversation that might lend credibility to the dream. You know, most of us know what happens next. The woman with the issue of blood presses in to touch the hem of Jesus's garment. And because of her fight and because of her faith, she's healed and Jesus stops to talk with her. And I just imagine Jairus in this moment thinking, okay, this is awesome. He can do miracles, but then hurry, what about mine, right? Have you ever watched the miraculous unfolding in your friends' lives and their marriages and their churches? Have you ever fought for and prayed for and believed for something and it just seems to fall into the laps of others? Do you ever come to a conference and feel a little bit discouraged? When you hear the miraculous church planting story, we just put a sign out and a thousand people showed up on the first day and 750 people gave their life to the Lord. And you're like, awesome, awesome. I, I'm excited, I love the church. I like these pastors. I'm excited about what God's doing, but God, what about my miracle? What about the thing that I'm praying for and believing for? When's it my turn? And I just imagine Jairus was right there celebrating the miracle for this woman, but fighting comparison and trying hard to silence fear and build up faith for the miracle he was believing for. And it says that while this was happening, news came from the ruler's house and they said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Have you ever had a dream die? Have you ever felt the sinking feeling that all that you were hoping for and praying for and believing for just might not happen. The scripture says, hearing this, Jesus turned to Jairus and said to him, do not fear, only believe. You see, some miracles happen in an instant. Some require a fight, but some are found in the wait. And Jesus, knowing this, turns to Jairus and says to him, do not fear, only believe. And listen to me, those are still the words of Jesus for you and me today, friends. So Jesus goes with Jairus to this place of death. And when they get there, mourners greet them. But Jesus is not phased by what everyone else is saying. He goes and grabs the hand of the mother and the father and goes into that room where their dead daughter is lying. And can you just imagine Jairus holding the hand of Jesus? I mean, literally holding the hand of hope as they walked into a hopeless and lifeless situation. And it says that Jesus took the little girl by the hand and he says to her, Talitha Kume, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she got up. She got up full of purpose, full of life, full of potential. What was dead is now alive because of the power of Jesus Christ. And listen, friends, today I was asked to talk about my city and my city is waiting. Your city is waiting for you. Pastor, leader, 
to cling tightly to the hand of hope, the giver of life, the one who gave you that dream and that mission in the first place, and to walk into that room that feels like death and watch Jesus call it to life. It may feel like a waiting season, but the word of Jesus for you today is do not fear, only believe. Listen, it's time to rise up. Your city and my city is waiting. She's pregnant with potential. So cling tightly to the hand of hope. Walk into that room of the dream that has died, of the marriage that might feel like it's over, and watch Jesus call that thing to life. Wow, that's powerful, that's powerful. Come on, it's powerful. How you doing, Ark? Good to see everybody on the West Coast, and uh, glad to be here. Uh, I do pastor at Church 1132, which is not the address, and it is not the 1,132nd Church of Dallas, although I have been asked that. Uh, I pastor right outside of Dallas, and uh, my city uh, is, is saturated. And, and the reason I say saturated is my city saturated because when I came there, I moved from the least church state at that time, Washington State, all the way to Texas, to one of the most church states. And people told me when we moved there that they didn't need another church. That we didn't need another expression. That they didn't need anyone else. And I remember driving down the street that our church is on and passing one, two, three, four, not exaggerating, six, seven, eight. We're the ninth church on the street. And I remember thinking, Maybe we don't need another expression. I mean, there's a lot of churches here. And uh, I, I moved to Texas to plan a youth ministry. And uh, people told me in Texas that you got to Texas. You know, you weren't born in Texas. You got, just got there as soon as you could. That's how I feel with ARC. I didn't plant with ARC. I just got here as soon as I could. And uh, it, we, we started a youth ministry, and God began to move, and we exploded from 15 kids to over 500 kids. And in three years, we were running 300 in the church and 500 in the student ministry. And i got to be honest with you, I started feeling really good about what we were doing because my measurement uh, was not really about the people that were still left to be reached. My measurement was the other ministries, or I should say the other eight on my street. And I found out that if I'm not careful, I can give myself to wrong measurements in this whole church planning, church building, kingdom building ordeal. And I realized that I begin to count the people in the seats in comparison to what someone else had in the seats, but I had neglected what was in the streets. I, I had begun to measure something and compare something next to someone else and what they had, and I started to feel good, but this is what you don't know. We're across the street, our church, from the largest high school in the state of Texas. 5,000 students, just 10th through 12th grade, and we had 500. And in a very humbling moment, God began to speak to me, and God began to show me that, Dustin, if you always measure according to the found, then you will never be capable of reaching the lost. Because you will take your foot off the accelerator way too soon. I have found this out to be true. If I measure wrong, I minister wrong. If I measure the wrong things, if I measure by the wrong tables, then I will measure the wrong thing. I will minister the wrong way. So in the book of 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 2 is the message the, 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 the verse the Lord gave me, it says this, Elisha went to this woman uh, who was in need, and, and, and he shows up to the woman, and he says, what do you have in your house? And if you're about ready to plant a church, this might be what you're feeling. What do I have in my house? And you might say what this woman said. She says, I have nothing at all except for I'm going to tell you this, the most powerful thing, powerful thing that ever happened in my life was realizing not what I did have, not what, what, what I was missing in the house, but realizing that I had an accept. I, I'm going to tell you, as a church leader, as a church planter, as a pastor, as a communicator, you've got to understand that what you need, you already have. What you need is in the house. This woman said... I don't have anything at all. You know what? Her perspective of what she had almost cost her her miracle. 
And I can say this to some of us in the room today that your perspective of what you have could cost you your miracle because you don't have a band. You don't have a building. You don't have, but you have something. And whatever that except for, God wants to use to fill your house. This is what was, was wild in the story is it says, the prophet said to her, go and gather as many jars as you can. And he says this, and don't gather just a little. And she went and she gathered as many jars as she saw fit to fill for her house. And I think this is a mistake some of us make sometimes because we collect enough capacity for our house. But the problem was never in the commodity the problem was always in the capacity. She collected enough jars for her house, but there was enough oil for the city. And if she would have collected more jars, she would have had more oil because it was not the problem with the commodity. The problem was with the capacity. And I've got good news for someone. I've got good news for a pastor. I've got good news for a church planter. If you can create space, God will begin to pour oil. You don't need everything that everyone else has. What you need is your accept. And if you have your accept, you can save your city. My, my problem was that I saw my city is saturated. But the truth was, my city was empty. And if I can see it as empty, the seats could be full but the streets could be full as well. And if I could see what was in the streets and I could create capacity in who I was and in what I was doing, then God would be faithful to pour out his anointing and his oil. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know why you came to Ark, but I've got great news for you. You have something in the house and what God put in the house is exactly what you need. It is the key to unlock your city. It is the key to unlock your state. I'm telling you, God wants to do something in and through you and it's not outside of you, it's all ready in you. If you create capacity, God will begin to fill every empty space. Come on, give God praise. So good. I love you. So good. That is so, so good. I want you to think about the booklet that we've just been given, See Your City. And I want you to begin to think, I want us to begin to think about that word see. It's a vision word. It's where we sense, it's where we have perception. Not what our reality is now, but it, what it can be in the future. And the experience we speak with today is not only from the scripture and a Christ experience, but we help start and launch from ground zero to churches. And I believe we need to see our city, and I want you to think about this, fill in the blank, see our city begin to believe in God's goodness and God's greatness. We want to begin to see our cities to begin to believe in God's goodness and God's greatness. When we begin to think about these words, believe, God, goodness, greatness. You see, when we think of belief, it's not just mentally agreeing with something in our mind that it might be right. You see, the word believe in the Bible, it actually means we believe so strongly in God, we're willing to commit our entire lives to God and even move from Michigan to Bellevue, Washington or somewhere to somewhere else because we believe that strongly in God. It means responding to God. It means trusting God. And a great illustration that begins to show us the word believe in the Bible is a story in the 1800s, 1860s. They had a famous Frenchman by the name of Charles Blondin, and he was a tight rope walker. Don't try to say that fast. And they suspended 160 feet above Niagara Falls, 11,000 uh, feet. He would walk across this tight rope. And one day the crowds would come and they would shout, almost like a worship session at a great conference. And they would shout, we believe, we believe. And that day he had a sack of potatoes in a wheelbarrow and they begin to cheer, we believe in the great blonde, and almost like the song, how great is our blonde, and sing with us. 
And he said, how many of you believe that I could carry a person across this tightrope in this wheelbarrow? They began to shout, we believe. And he said, who will volunteer and get into the wheelbarrow? Not one person volunteered. You see, we see our city, it's not good enough for them to belong. Jesus Christ did not come for them just to belong, but we're in our cities to compel everyone to begin to get in a different wheelbarrow that God will take them across. I want you to begin to see your city with the perception of the cross. And in the cross, it has a straight line, and then they have a line that goes across. And on one side of the cross, we always see God. We have to begin to see God. Before we see the emptiness of our own jars, we need to begin to see God is already in our city. And not only God, we see the goodness of God. You see, right now in California, in the entire West Coast, 25 years ago, we helped start a church in Seattle, Washington. Five to six years ago in Ventura, California. Everybody's believing. People believe in karma, good energy, bad energy. They believe in a collective intelligence. They believe, but do they believe in God? And do they believe that he is good? In the most famous scripture in the entire New Testament, we always see it at football games, John 3, 16. And what does it say? For God, not energy, not higher power, not a good vibe, but God, for God. So, not just love, but so love. Like when my wife, I said, is that taco good? She goes, babe, it's so good. For God, he didn't just love, he so loved the world that he gave. He was benevolent. God loves on a local level, God loves on a global level. You see, our God is not only loving, he is giving. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever and I love the word whoever Republicans and liberals atheists and Buddhists no matter your attraction no matter your orientation no matter where you come from you could be red dirt black dirt brown dirt white dirt wishing they were black dirt they go to a tanning bed and now they're orange dirt God loves everybody And you see, our God is good. We're trying to convince the world, your city, that God, to not only believe in God, but to believe in God's goodness. I was a Jewish woman, is a friend of mine, and she's in her 90s, and she came from another nation, and she said, Pastor Jude, she said, can you help me die? I said, do you believe in God? She says, of course. And she began to quote the great scripture from the Torah, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. I said, so you believe in God? She said, absolutely. I said, do you believe he's good? She paused, she says, no, I can never believe he's good. My family was moved, moved from Austria by the Nazis. We'd go to London, they would be bombed. I would come to the States and my first husband would die and then my second husband would die. What about genocide? What about abuse? What about terrorism? I said, so you have a column right now and on one side, all the evils of all of your life in history, you have put it on the side of God. And I said, but what about penicillin and antibiotics? And when a hurricane comes to Houston or Florida and people begin to help, she goes, that's man. I said, so you put all the good of our life on the side of man, and that means you believe in man more than you do God. I believe God is a good God. And Hebrews says, whoever comes to God, they must believe he is, and he's good, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Can you say amen? And not only is he good, he's great. And the other day, God said, if you think I'm that great, why aren't your thoughts about your city and your church great? Why do you think mediocre, mediocre thoughts when I think great thoughts about your city? You see, when we begin to love our city like God loves our city and think great thoughts of our city like God thinks, then we will see everyone believe in the goodness and the greatness of God. As we end, 25 years ago, we helped start a church in Seattle. We had about 40 people. We were walking in the kingdom at the Seahawks game. Pastor Wendell Smith and I were walking. He said, Jude, this is our city. He said, these are our people. He said, they don't even know it yet. He believed in a good God. We believed that he was great. And 25 years later, it's one of the largest churches, one of the most influential churches, and it's seeing the city affected. In Jesus' name, amen.
good. Hey, hey, I love getting to be with my peoples. I just love getting to be in the company of pastors and it's so smart to gather together. I just wanna encourage you to do it every single time that you can, to gather together, to love each other. And it's the end so that we can go and really be out there and be effective out in the world. I, I, my husband's here, so almost 40 years we've been married. Hey, he walked into Bible school and I said, I'll take that one. It took him just a minute to notice that he would take this one too. But we've been married and loving it, pastoring there in Seattle for uh, 38 years almost. So we've been at it for a while and love it, still love it, which is actually the miracle. I think that alone uh, speaks that it's just a miracle, but we love getting to do what God has called us to do. When we first started off, there was a particular message that was around. It was like, uh, you know, it was kind of like it was taught a lot. It was found in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, and it was the thorn of the flesh. So since we're all Bible people in here, I'm not going to necessarily read the whole scripture, but do note this. In 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, it deals with the thorn in the flesh. So one of the parts, it says this, um, it says, I was given a thorn in the flesh, was given me a messenger of Satan to buffet at me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. The last verse of this chapter of this, of this particular thing says that I want to read is found in verse uh, whatever it says, in persecution and distress for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So like, let's talk about this for just a moment where it talks about this. When, when I first heard this particular uh, verse being taught on with some great preachers, what they concentrated on to me when I was you know, young listening to this was the thorn in the flesh and everybody was kind of debating what was Paul's thorn? I mean, what was the thorn? And every, it was kind of like every message I heard was what was the thorn? And everybody kind of was guessing what was the thorn, you know? And then it was kind of like, but God, God didn't give him the thorn. And everybody was making sure that everybody knew God didn't give him the thorn, but he had a thorn. But what was the thorn? Okay, so all I thought about as a kid, you know, as, oh, kid, sorry, that's probably some of you in this room. Um, when we started, you know, because I was 21, 20, I was 21 when we started, so I was like, I, I don't know, and I don't, what would I know about what his thorn was? I mean, did he have a bad wife? I don't know. I mean, you know, everybody's like debating it. And as life has gone by, and I, the Spirit of God brought this particular scripture back to me in talking to us as pastors and leaders. What I, there's a couple thoughts. One is that I thought that now that I look back on it, they were, they were, to me, they were talking about maybe the wrong thing. Like, who cares what his thorn was? Like, I don't care what, I don't really care what Paul's thorn was, but maybe they missed the message of what the message was of what Paul was trying to say to us as people that are out doing and loving people. And we are in the mission, our whole mission of life as, as people. I don't know when you were called into this, but you were called to the mission of laying down your life and becoming a servant for humanity of saying, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Amen? So we have a mission, and it's a high mission that God has called us to. So maybe if they should have said, wait, wait a minute, instead of concentrating about what Paul's thorn is, maybe we should talk about what's your thorn? What's your thorn? What is the thing that catches you? What is the thing that stops you? And some of these, oh, these have been phenomenal words of hearing about some of the things that are the thorns in our side. And it isn't that they're just one. And, and then you have to also recognize through the seasons of life, it's like the devil goes, aha, now I'm gonna bring out something. Because the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he doesn't give up. And he doesn't stop. So he works for the weakness in the area of who you are. Who you are as a leader. The season of the life that you're living with. The challenge of the people that you're working with. The thing that you hear. And then, like, say the thorn, like different things. I, I, I can say particular that I've always had to work with, um, like the thorn of depression. 
I just have. I've had to work with that sense of just allowing myself to just feel like just that I'm going down and feeling sad and feeling challenged. And why? Well, I've kind of likened it. My dad, who I just absolutely adored my dad. My mom and dad were pastors, but my dad also dealt with depression. And he was the most wonderful, always just such a kind and wonderful guy. But in fact, even as a little girl, I used to call myself Wendy Paul because my dad's name was Paul. You know, I mean, I just related with my dad and I loved my dad, but he had depression and it became, it's a familiar thing. And so it was familiar for me to take that a part of myself also. And I've recognized one of the parts of the thorn that I've had to deal with is a, a depression type of thing, like get done with something and then I go home and I'm like, I didn't do this and I didn't do that and I didn't do this and I forgot to talk to that person. I didn't smile right at that person. And all the thoughts come in inside this, Am I ready? Anybody understand where I'm going? The thorns that, that become a part of us, and it says the thorn, and the, and, the, and the challenges that come into our world and into our life, and, and there's a thorn that wants to come in and stop us. That's the thing that this is really communicating. That thorn is to come in to stop you. To, to dominate you because how many they say they say that how many percentage of pastors walk out of ministry in their life why do they walk out why do pastors not make it to the end of living on this earth why maybe the thorn gets them maybe they don't get around a company of safe honest real people and get some help that we don't have those conversations that are really, really vulnerable. You know, when my dad got kicked out of the Methodist church, he got filled with the Holy Spirit and blah, 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 whole big story. But the whole the part of the story was, is that he went into the very dark, deep depression. And unfortunately, he didn't have a company of people to talk with. There was nobody that came alongside me and said, hey, come on, let's, let's talk about this. Let's see what we can do. And then it says this, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My name is Wayne Cheney from Long Beach, California. I pastor Antioch Church in the city of Long Beach. And my city is a city that needs to be known for more than Snoop Dogg's greatest hits. But besides that, my city is a city that needs more lower rowers. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, beginning at the first verse, he says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ as servants of Christ. If anyone could have pulled the superstar card, it would have been Paul. He saw the ascended Christ face to face. Not only did he see the ascended Christ face to face, I can't give his entire resume, but he wrote more books of the Bible than anyone else. Yet he says in the midst of everything that he's experienced, if you want to consider me, if you want to regard me, if you want to think about me as something, he says, think about me as a servant. Say servant. This word servant, it comes from a compound. It's a compound word. It actually means beneath and service. The compound word that Paul was dealing with is a rower that is to row beneath the boat. The only person to ever use this is the Apostle Paul. He used it three times, nowhere else in the Bible. He said, when you consider me, consider me as that guy down in the bottom of the boat that is not seen but who who literally rose with the oars. The illusion specifically is not only to those that row on the bottom of the boat, but the illusion specifically is to a Roman battleship. Now, if you allow me to speak parenthetically just for a moment, I think those of us that have been in ministry for a while have done a disservice to some of those who look on because we've described this ministry journey more as a cruise ship a cruise ship of leisure than we have an actual battleship. But if you've been in ministry longer than five weeks, you know that this is not a carnival cruise, nor is it a Viking cruise. 
but you know that ministry is a battleship. And interestingly, there are others that paint a false picture because they treat ministry as if it's a sailboat. That we are just to lounge as the wind of God carries us along. Now, while I believe in the supernatural, I just wrote a book, Your Miraculous Potential. Trust me, we, we move in that in our house. But the reality is it is not either or, but it is both. If you were to look at the Roman cruise ship, you'll see it comprised of both oars on the bottom, but also sails on the top. It is this tandem work between God and his people. Well, we are to labor, but he also is to breathe on our work. What I found is this. When we do what we can do, God comes alongside us and he will aid us in the areas that we can't do. It is this tandem effort between our work and the sails that blow. If there's anything our city needs, is it needs servants. It needs folks in the bottom of the boat who know how to row. I wish I had time to labor through this, but I don't. If I had time to work this, I'll work this like a chicken wing till there's no more meat left on the bone. I would break the bone open, suck the marrow out, but I only have three minutes and eight seconds left. But rowers... Activity is not fueled by credit. There's no way that they could be fueled by credit because they were not prominently displayed on top, but they were beneath. If you're a rower, you're the kind of person that gets excited more about the impact of your work than you do people knowing your name. The second quality of the rower, the rower had to have better ears than he did eyes because they could not see where they were going, but they would have to look up at the captain, which Paul alludes to as being Jesus Christ. He would speak and give them instructions on where they were to go, because if they couldn't, they would be disoriented, not know where they were traveling. So what he suggests here is that we have to have an ear to hear God in order for us to know where he is going. If your devotion life is suffering, you will eventually become disoriented in ministry and end up frustrating. You'll be rowing but going nowhere because it's your own efforts and not instruction that comes from the Father. I know this might, may not be your in-group. I don't know if you're in-group or your out-group, but turn to your neighbor and tell them, get back into your devotion. Rowers also knew how to work in concert with the other laborers. They didn't come into a city and attempt to do their own thing, acting as if the move of God started when they got there. Nor are the rowers the kind of people who are fathers in the city, but act like they have the community locked and the move of God locked because they were the first one to get there. Rowers knew how to move together in tandem. Look at your neighbor, ask them, are you a rower? That's what I love about Ark. We're not doing our own thing, but we're moving together in tandem. But finally, we got to go with the one minute and 14 seconds I have left. But the last thing that rowers did were rowers knew how to handle or to how to endure adversity. It is a willingness to shoulder the most difficult task, not constantly looking for the easiest path. They were able to keep rowing through pain and adverse circumstances without giving up. My friend Sam Chan says, you will only grow to your pain threshold. My question for Ark today is, what does it take to get you to stop rowing? What does it take to get you to stop serving? That will be the extent of your impact. That's why when Paul talked about himself, he did not measure himself by his church growth. He did not measure himself necessarily by how well known he was. He did not measure himself by his celebrity, but he measured himself by what he was willing to suffer for the gospels. He said, I've been beat, I've been shipwrecked, I've been stoned, I've been left for dead. He said, but I'm still rowing. Elbow your neighbor, tell him I'm still rowing, I'm still rowing. I gotta go, but if you would give your neighbor your testimony real quick. Give them your testimony. Uh, let me help you, because we don't have time for you to give them your full testimony. But look at them real quick. Look at them and tell them I've been through some things this year. I I've lost money. I've lost time. Sometimes my church grew, sometimes my church decreased. But look at them one more time and tell them I'm still rowing. Because when God comes back, He's not looking for to say, well done, superstar, well done, bishop, well done, denominational president. 
president, but he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful rower. Come on, come on, come on. Elbow him, tell him when you roll, things happen. When you roll, darkness is pushed back. When you roll, cities are changed. When you roll, strongholds are broken. You can't stop rowing. And in the event that you get tired, wait, I say wait on the Lord. And that's when the wind will fill yourselves and do through you what you can't do in yourself. Look at your neighbor and say, keep rowing. Woo, come on, come on. Give it up for our seven and seven one more time. You know what I love about this? When I, when I see how many great preachers we have in the ark, I keep thinking the future's bright. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes and let's pray. Father, I just thank you for our cities. I thank you for all the leaders in this room. Lord, May you help us live a life worthy of the callings we've received and love our cities even a fraction as much as you love them. We love you, thank you, and praise you for this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Give it up one more time.